even if they do build the affordable housing units is they make them use separate entrances to the facilities. Oftentimes these doors open onto like the alleyways near the dumpsters. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. This is the continuing conversation with Greg Fuller when we move from talking about the financialization of housing markets to the effect of debt on the creation of inequality having to do with housing. Please enjoy the conversation. And then if we like kind of move this into the realm of debt, right? Like I think, um, you know, again, in Canada, I think we're probably number two on the list of the most indebted the in most indebted individuals and and specifically housing debt, I think we're like right behind Australia, right? And so, you know, at what point does debt become the problem? Because, you know, people, individuals now, in order to get onto the housing ladder, now take on these massive amounts of debt. We haven't really talked about the, you know, the welfare state's role in this either, but, you know, I think that was a point that you made in your book that I, I really liked or found very interesting is that as the welfare state has retreated, like it's this asset-based welfare where now people are able to use their house as the security, the collateral that provides them with the safety net, at least the middle class is, right? Able to use that to secure a standard of living that they might not otherwise be able to have, right? So how does this ballooning of debt then affect our lives? How does it destabilize things? What's the effect of it? I think that the, the, that whole question of how much does sort of relying on people to build up wealth in their house to sort of supplant or replace the welfare state. That's a very active debate. You know, a lot of the stuff that I read for journals that like, um, you know, we're reviewing for, for future publication is about this topic. There's a lot of uncertainty as to how much this is something we're reading into uh, the data versus something that it's coming out of the data. So I would say, I tend to think that it's 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 common sense that there's going to be some sort of substitution there, but but that's a that's an open question, uh, as to exactly what the relationship is between housing wealth and and welfare state spending. As for the debt itself, it depends on a number of things. I mean, when you look at the kinds of debt that were being accumulated in the late two thousands, the sort of stuff that goes into the big short, you know. There was a lot of debt being issued with very, very, very poor underwriting requirements. And under those circumstances, any sort of recession was going to cause a lot of the, the debt to essentially go into a non-performing status where it's in default. And then you start that sort of chain reaction through the financial system that became the global financial crisis. There has been, I think, a lot of policy work done to try to prevent that specific thing from happening again. So I don't think the debt that exists within housing markets is as systemically dangerous today as it was 10, 15 years ago. At the same time, it's still reflective of the fact that to get into the housing market at all, 
you either have to be just rich, as in you have to have lots of capital, or you have to be able to take on debt. And so, you know, and, and for most people, the number of years of income that you would have to be looking at in order to build up enough to, to, to buy a, a single family home, it's getting less and less and less realistic. So I guess my answer there is that I, I don't see the debt as, as like a ticking time bomb the way it was maybe 15 years ago, but it is just reflective of the thing that policy hasn't addressed. If policies addressed the dangers of defaults ticking off a, a chain of dominoes to the financial system, great. But what policy hasn't addressed are the big inequality issues and the macro, the macro social implications of having populations where basically a third to a half of the population are just cut out of financial markets yeah. entirely. And basically, the only way you can get them into homes is you either heavily subsidize them, you, you somehow increase their incomes a lot all of a sudden, or you make it very easy to borrow. And the thing is, making it very easy to borrow blows up the underwriting restrictions that send you back to where you were before the global financial crisis, because that was the solution before. And you are seeing some signs that places are trying it again, and it's a little scary, like the UK, um, which is facing one of the most severe cost of living crises out there right now, anywhere in the world. They just announced that they were eliminating some of the income checks on new mortgages, making it easier to lend larger amounts to people with lower incomes. Uh, and okay, so then maybe you get to increase debt and increase home ownership a little bit again, but then you, you're reopening the old door to defaults and the consequences there. It, I mean, it seems like, and tell me if I'm crazy, it seems, it seems like the thing that we all need to do is just build a ton more housing. Like, so why, why have we not done that? I mean, we've, 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 We've seen inequality growing. We've seen, you know, the prices, people getting priced out pretty consistently. We've seen institutions come in with massive amounts of dollars to buy. Why aren't we just building, building, building like crazy? Yeah. And 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 I've, you know, in the the handful of interviews I've given before, in the few times I've been asked by politicians to give housing policy advice, this is this is my answer. Is the way that you solve this problem is on the supply side, you build more housing. But, you know, there, there are two very good reasons why that's a difficult political sell. Uh, one is that unless you're talking about some sort of, you know, financial public-private partnership, which set aside that for a second, because I do want to talk about that, you're talking about the government paying for it, which is, you know, either then taxes or state borrowing, both of which are politically problematic, but then the other thing is increasing the housing supply has a direct negative effect on everyone who already owns housing. So if you live in a in a nice, you know, area of the country or any country and there are lots of good jobs there and the housing market's tight and your home is appreciating in value, if the government comes along and says we'd like to build 10,000 units of, of new housing here and make it available so that there's lots more people who can move into this neighborhood, that is bad for you on a, in a very narrow sort of financial sense of looking at my housing value. So I think that the, 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 the problems of, of governments paying for social housing and then the problems of depressing the price 
by creating more supply. I mean, it's a simple supply and demand issue. Those are both two reasons why it's a hard sell. The third thing, the thing that we do tend to see on the supply side is more sort of a, of a okay, the government will contract with a big developer and say, all right, we are going to subsidize this developer in terms of making it easier to get finance, or we're going to cover part of the finance, or we'll, you know, basically we'll subsidize the construction. And in exchange, those developers will include some low income units within the properties they're developing because most of the new developments aren't being targeted at the affordable range of the market they're being directed at the higher end of the market and so governments try to make it more affordable by ensuring that there are some affordable units that are built into these new developers uh, these new developments and at least the empirical results I know of from these attempts have been pretty catastrophically bad. Now, granted, most of what I know about it are, are, is coming from places like the UK, where uh, the only way, the only thing a developer has to say to get out of providing the affordable units is at any point in the process saying, "Oh, we looked at the numbers, and uh, it actually isn't financially viable." Oh, it's not financially viable. Well, then you don't have to do it. And so, you know, all these these affordable units that were promised then disappear because during the the actual production process, they become supposedly unviable. Even when they do get produced, you get these sort of strange scenarios. Have you guys ever heard of poor doors? So in in Britain in particular, this is a very common way of trying to get affordable housing is you, you pay a developer to do reserve X percent of their units for affordable housing. But what they tend to do, even if they do build the affordable housing units, is they make them use separate entrances to the facilities that exclude them from things like the concierge and the swimming pools and the fitness rooms. Oftentimes, these doors open onto like the alleyways near the dumpsters. So if you're in one of the 10 affordable housing units, you can live here, but you're very clearly a second class citizen with your own entrance, none of the amenities that everyone else gets. And and that's if you're getting these units produced at all. Uh, A lot of them just disappear. I feel I feel good about myself having not heard about that. Now I feel kind of dirty. Yeah, you can you can Google poor doors. That's cool. Uh, and and there, there's some really spectacular visual instances uh, uh, from London in particular. Wow! Wow! I wonder. You know, it's so interesting because, like, we that's precisely where we are now uh, in in Can- in Canada and in Montreal. This is it's exactly where it is. So we have you won't get your construction permit if you don't have I think it's twenty percent or something of affordable units and the developer can either give a cash payment to the city for that, or they can choose to, you know, build those units and then have like kind of a mixed development. But like, that's, that's next level. And like, I wouldn't be surprised if someone picks up that idea and ends up importing it because we're just a little bit, you know, behind. So that's a, you know, certainly a bit sobering. Yeah. In practice, in practice, it is a way of getting some units built for affordable tenants. It's just that, you know, developers are going to have incentives to try to get around those things and they will get around them in some ways that make us all quite squeamish. Yeah. I mean, there are in the U.S., well, maybe not everyone in the U.S., but in Berkeley, California and in the Bay Area, there are nonprofit developers who, you know, try to try to get some money through government lending or through, you know, government programs to build specifically, you know, for profit 
you know, rentals that people can be part of and own and live in that are that are sort of low income rentals. And it's a company that ultimately is a for-profit unit, but for the first 30 years or whatever, it's uh it's not. So uh, there are there are things that are coming up in that space. Do you see any others? So the, there are um, there are also some social housing REITs. Uh, so mm. uh, again, real estate investment trusts that that are sort of trying to to attract capital specifically for these sorts of investments. I you know there, there is I think in my last paper I said there's at least a there's some reason for optimism here because these tools in the hands of people operating in a relatively altruistic manner could produce more housing for at, at affordable prices. End of right. story. It's, it is possible. At the same time, again, using sort of the examples from the UK, for instance, the social housing uh, real estate investment trust there only buy the kinds of social housing that, that serves for, uh, serves people who have special needs Hmm. Um, and special needs, like as in like uh, extra elevators and things like that, lifts to get people in and out of the shower, stuff that requires a lot of capital improvement. And if they invest a certain amount of capital improvement, it allows them to raise rates with the, uh, the, the, the government entities that are paying for those flats in the first places. So, okay, yes, good, more housing, but it's not, again, there's, there's, there's an angle to it. You know, and there are other paths as well. I mean, there there are paths be, be, uh, that would that would help uh, on the supply side. Take you know around where you're from in, in Berkeley. I mean, one of the biggest fights in California for years has been local zoning restrictions. Um, and you know, we tend to think of California as this left wing bastion, but if you look if you look at uh, how how local neighborhoods have responded to, to zoning restrictions, they do not want multifamily residential properties being put up in their you know nice single family. You know. We we invented NIMBY here. That's what we invented. That that's ours. <laughs> I mean, Berkeley in particular doesn't it have yeah. a sort of a bit of a history there. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Yeah. <sighs> So there's hope. I mean, there is there are reasons for hope, but you have to hope that it's the right tools in the hands of the right yeah. people. And then it stays that way for, you know, because, of course, if they start earning too much money, then it'll attract the attention yeah. of, of others. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to be, I mean, that's, that's me putting on my cynical hat. But. No, but I mean, that's again, that's exactly what we're witness, like witnessing in Canada, the uh, CMHC, which is our like you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac kind of deal uh, came out with these now affordable mortgages for multifamily investors. And so like the investors are now in a room talking about how to game that, you know, so like it's the right tools in the hands of the right people. But just to get back to the supply side question for a second. So, you know, I also recently read Piketty and got really excited about some of his data. And, you know, one of the things that I found interesting was in this move from, you know, a rural context where we were basically an agricultural society to now, like a lot of this real estate value kind of thing goes hand in hand with urbanization. And that's then kind of a supply question because all of a sudden, and so like all these people are crowding into these global cities, right? And so like, obviously like, you know, there, there's a, how do you densify but I mean, how much of this problem is like really something that you can trace back to financialization and how much of it is like a geographic and economic shift in the way we do business? 
Well, I think some of this, yeah, goes goes much deeper than financialization, especially when you start talking about, uh, you know, the shift from from sort of rural to, to, to more urban economies. You know, if you look at, for example, in Spain, one of the, the, the bigger political movements right now is protesting against the 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 emptification, uh, the, the I'm not sure what word they use in Spanish, but basically it's the the hollowing out of whole areas of rural Spain, and you see the same thing in Italy. And you could argue that sort of some of the Rust Belt phenomenon in the United States is is kind of similar in that. The way our economies function, uh, we, we benefit greatly from what we call agglomeration economies, right? Where if things are geographically located close to each other, it makes things more efficient and people tend to want to move into those areas because it's easier to find jobs, it's easier to find services. And, and so basically there, there are these, these pressures that push people into more urban centers and out of rural areas, especially rural areas that struggle to sell things beyond their borders. You still get, you know, rural farming communities where they're, you know, they're thriving because they're basically exporting from their communities. But I don't think that this is, I mean, this has probably been intensified by by financial activity because it's hard to find things that haven't been. But I think this is, this is, you know, one of those trends that we've been seeing in capitalism going back to the 19th century. And, and it's getting worse in that huge segments of northern France, uh, north central Spain, all across Italy, uh, parts of the United States, you know, th- these are places that are no longer able to sustain local communities. And, and, as, and one of the things that, that we've seen in these regions as they've declined is, is um, that they've shifted towards the political extremes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you start looking at, you know, where does, you know, where does Le Pen and the Rassemblement National, the, the French far right, where do they do the best? They tend to do very well in these hollowed out communities. We're about to have an election in Italy uh, in which the far right is almost certainly going to win. And again, they're going to dominate in these these hollowed out areas. So, you know, the, the, there's um, I, I would say that it's adjacent to the kind of mm-hmm. uh, the finance thing. But it, it, it's there in terms of the housing, because, of course, there's housing. There is housing available. It's just not where people necessarily want to live. And you do see, you know, you occasionally see these crazy things, you know, like a a place in Newfoundland or a place in Italy where they're like, we'll give you the house for a a euro or a dollar if you'll just come and live there and, you know, contribute something to the community. And the, the reality is that, yeah, a lot of the housing stock that exists is essentially worthless because it's in the wrong place. And so it's not just rich and poor in terms of housing stock. It's also where is your housing stock? Mm. And and if it's in the wrong place and it's not always, you know, rural is not always bad. I mean, there are places that are relatively rural in the United States, like northern Idaho areas around like Sandpoint, which are, are booming. But essentially, if your home is in the wrong place, you might as well not own it. And there's no way to move you know, physical property from one place to the other. So this compounds the supply problem. It's not just that we need supply. It's that we need supply in these specific areas. And a lot of those specific areas, Jonathan, as you were saying, have, you know, NIMBY concerns about putting more housing there. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's this real, uh, you know, sort of sorting, right? Because like, as 
the urban cores become this highly desirable real estate, which is then financialized for, you know, all kinds of reasons, because there's money to be made there is that basically like, you know, cities used to be more income. There used to be more of an income spread in cities. And what's happening is that like now, as you know, the laptop classes sort of crowd in whatever COVID might've been a hiccup in that, but like that then pushes everybody else like out onto that fringe area where it's not so much about like urban ghettos. I'm, I'm talking about the Canadian context here is that it, it becomes more about like pushing that out that like, you know, the cleaning staff can't live close enough to work. And so now you have to pay X number of you know, dollars for those people because they can't get, get close enough to where they need to be. So I just think like, it's worth bringing that point in to not overstate as if this is only something to do with the financial system, because like, that's a lot of the the arguments that I read is that like, oh, it's all the fault of the banks, but like, actually this process goes way further back of like, you have this agrarian phase, then you have the industrial phase, which was all about the factory. And now we have the information phase where like people want to be close to the jobs that are finance jobs, the, you know, information technology jobs, whatever modern economy service industry. So I think that's just important to like put that into perspective. Well, and I think another, another sort of micro element of that, that we could bring in is the, um, the rise of, of uh, second homes, holiday homes, Airbnbs, right? Because you get basically entire nice areas then that become completely unaffordable to the local communities because they're either holiday homes or second homes or Airbnbs, but then all of the people required to work in those, you know, in the communities serving those, those, those people can't afford to live in the local area. And you're getting that dynamic again, all sorts of places, but especially in, in, you know, seasonal, especially seasonal, nice places to be. Uh, Mm -hmm. So like, you know, the Northern Welsh peninsulas and Mm -hmm. things like that. But yeah, it's a very similar phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Or even like you talk about like, you know, the, like the city of London, we didn't talk about this, but there's also this, you know, cross border flows of capital where, you know, Canada also to a lesser extent than the UK, like we've become the safe place in the north where all of this foreign capital wants to send money to. And I mean, I think the UK is worse off than this with the Russian oligarchs and like whatever else, but that like, you know, as these things become desirable, it's not just like local wealth is interested in it. Now it's that all of a sudden all of, you know, we have a lot of like Chinese money that's looking for a way to get out of China. And so like they, you know, there's a lot of that that came into Vancouver, which then now local Canadians from Vancouver can't afford a house in Vancouver anymore because all of this wealth from China got funneled in there, you know, so. It's one of those really interesting dynamics that we've seen over the last 10 years in particular is that the housing prices in major global cities have become increasingly synchronized. So, you know, it used to be that housing prices in Berlin would have nothing to do with housing prices in Vancouver. But now because the buyers are essentially the same, you know, it's the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, it's BlackRock, it's the same, you know, financial institutions. We're seeing that that in, in that sort of top class of maybe 30 to 40 global cities, all of their housing markets are operating on the yeah. same cycle now because essentially they're subject to the same buyers and sellers. And it's crazy because of course, they're gonna produce housing that meets their needs as institutional investors, which may in fact very likely has very little to do with the actual social needs of the community where the housing is gonna be based. Uh, and sort of so that, that local delinking poses a fundamental democracy problem because essentially you're subjecting local housing policy to the whims of international finance. And that's going to serve certain ends, but not others. 
I, I have this recurring uh, thought pattern that says basically you can't marry capital. You know, capital is free to flow wherever the hell capital wants to go. You can only date capital. And if you can only date capital, capital wins, right? And so how do we, we're not going to get rid of financialization, right? So how do we, how do we solve for the inequality it's creating and it will enhance? What do you, Terry? I just want to make a joke. Enforced monogamy. (laughs) Enforced monogamy. All right. Right. There you go. Isn't that a Jordan Peterson thing? Yeah. That's Uh, why I'm just going to make a very politically incorrect joke. Uh, so, um, well, okay. So, so, I mean, uh, the, the, the idea of enforced monogamy in this particular context <laughs> would be capital controls, right? Uh, you say, uh, so for example, in, in, uh, in certain places, I think Brazil used a system like this for a while. They have what's called non-remunerated deposit requirements. So let's say you want to put your money in Brazil. The idea is, uh, let's say, you know, you're going to buy a million dollars worth of stock and something. Uh, the way the deposit would work is you'd have to take a certain percentage of that, usually a very low percent, one percent, less than one percent, and put it in a special account. And essentially, the money in that account functions as a hostage. If you take your money out of Brazil before a certain time limit, in a year in most cases, then you just lose that deposit to the state. If you keep your money in the country throughout that time period, then you get the deposit back. So basically, it's like saying, if I'm going to give you money, then, you know, I'm going to put up this hostage to ensure that that I will keep my money with you for X amount of time. But, you know, the problem is that with the degree of financial interconnection we have and the degree of technological sophistication and ways we have, it's really hard to make capital controls work. But of course, capital controls were a cornerstone of the post-war economic order. When you look at what we call the Bretton Woods system, the system that emerged out of World War II, capital controls were in place and that made it much easier for countries to have different fixed exchange rates while also limiting what kinds of capital flowed in and out of their systems. You know, by the 90s and certainly by today, that, you know, it's almost gone as, as 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 a way of doing economic business. At the same time, there has been a renaissance at the IMF and other big institutional sort of think tanks saying, well, look, Capital controls have value in certain contexts, especially when you've got a booming economy that looks white hot. You might want to impose capital controls to slow down the money going in, because at least that, you know, maybe you can't marry capital, but you can at least stop capital from getting on Tinder. Right. Uh, So so, so you you take the most attractive options and you say, no, 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 no. There's going to be some barriers to participating there. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's there's a fundamental asymmetry in that capital is extremely mobile and can move around in demand conditions, and labor can't. And if you give capital kind of a structural advantage over labor like that, you're going to get growing inequality on a, on a global scale. And so, you know, what I say is when we, when we, we see political discussions that talk of, that that tend to point at migrants as part of the problem, usually the problem underneath that, that's the actual cause, is international capital mobility, not international labor mobility. But as you say, it's very, very hard practically to stop it from dating around. <laughs> 
Um, Jonathan, I'm going to leave you the last question. I wanted just to put, like, you know, push on, on, on one more thing here, like, sorry to get back to the market, but you know, if you were talking about, you know, these like big foreign institutions, like building up, you know, basically housing stock that is not serving local demand. I mean, shouldn't the market take care of that? Because if, for example, like again in Montreal, I'm watching this going on. You know, I'm watching these units, very expensive units, being put up all over the place. And I know what the average salary is here because I qualify tenants all the time. And you know, when they're telling me, okay, we're going to rent these units for like twenty five hundred dollars, I'm like, I know for a fact that my base of people in Montreal can't afford to pay twenty five hundred dollars for units. So you're building all this stuff, but like eventually you're going to just have to drop the price, or they're going to be empty because it doesn't work. So. Does that not then insert some kind of a, you know, underlying reality that if they are building all of this housing that's, you know, meant for this upper class that isn't there, like, isn't that going to just have to come down to earth? Only if there is insufficient interest from the global property investor class, because in order for a, for, you know, uh, a property investor in Bangkok or Hong Kong or Berlin or Amsterdam to benefit from owning that property, they don't have to live there. They just have to buy it and hope that it appreciates before they sell it on to the next person. And in general, what a lot of these places are trying to do is generate properties that are so attractive that they are going to appreciate over time and, and allow you know, house flipping, essentially speculative investment mm -hmm. to, to, to gain capital gains that way. If that sort of purchaser disappears and developers are building these luxury outlets that no one is buying, then yes, then you might start to see developers go, Whoa, well, we've got to start building things more, more tooled to the local market. So, I mean, and again, I'm hesitant to sort of conflate the problems of international people moving around and international capital moving around. But if you put limits on sort of non-resident owners mm -hmm. of properties mm -hmm. purely as investment vehicles, that could realign the incentives between developers and local communities, because then you'd have to produce the units for the local communities. The problem arises when you can produce the units and the people who own them and benefit from owning them don't even have to live there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, ultimately, like, you know, in a speculative logic, that makes sense. With, like, let's say condo constructions, right? And so like, you leave the condos empty. And, and as long as the market keeps going up, nobody cares. But I mean, if you're built a, building rentals, and you can't, and you made your financial model at a $2,500 rent point, and there's not the local community to support that, like, whatever, you know, Achilles or like whatever Swedish REIT is building that building in Montreal is going to have a, a hard landing when they discover that, people can only pay 1500, you know, like, I don't know that, that that's the question that I asked myself. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think that that is, that is one way that market forces I could see could, could force an, an adjustment. I, you know, I, I doubt they'd sell those luxury units at a lower price. They'd probably subdivide them into smaller units, but, mm -hmm. uh, but that might be better than nothing. But yeah, yeah. I think that, the, that you're right. That if basically, if the if the the elite market that they're going for isn't there, then then it'll force structural changes in that particular project. And if we start to see lots of these projects end up in situations where they're building buildings in New York and Amsterdam and London and Vancouver and they're not filling, 
then I think we're going to see them rethink, okay, uh, maybe this slice of the market isn't what we're going for. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, what a lot of them are going for, though, isn't the most sort of creme de la creme slice of the market. They're going for, I mean, the, the, the sort of gold star target, especially for rentals, is someone who is either newly married or single, highly educated and working in tech. They're like the, the, the golden, you know, goose for, for a lot of these guys. And that's what they're aiming for. And, and that's an easier sell because there's more of them, right? There's more of those people than there are Russian oligarch mega billionaires. Yeah. yeah. Terry, I, I'm assuming, you know, they have an economist on staff that's actually looked at maybe the direction of rents and maybe they're, they're anticipating higher rents. So maybe you're going to benefit from higher rents soon. It could yeah, go that way too. My right? tenants can't pay them. <laughs> right, right. Your but, tenants. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no point, no point taken. And I mean, you know, as you're talking, I was thinking of, you know, the Canada's basically looking at doubling its population in the next 30 years. So, you know, they probably have a longer, their analysis has a longer time window on it than mine does. Yeah. And what we do, I mean, they do move down the value chain in terms of building properties. But what we tend to see is that they don't get to the people, even when we talk about what's called affordable housing, usually they're still talking about people within like 10, 15% of the median income. Well, what about the people 20, 30, 40% mm -hmm. below the median income? You know, it's nearly half the people, right? So you know, there's not a lot that's being talked about, about building stuff that's specifically aimed at the, the I don't want to say the lowest end of the market, but the most impoverished end of the market. I, I think that's where the, the biggest challenge lies. S subsidized housing, the stuff where, you know, we're helping people pay for, right? Yeah. Uh, Greg, just real quick. We like to ask everyone these kind of, this kind of question. We kind of missed it early on. So this is, we talk about true wealth you know, not just financial wealth. So in your thoughts and your, you know, when you fall asleep at night and those thoughts go through your head, what's important to you in terms of true wealth? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I would have, I would have a very sort of, you know, what my mom would call a woo-woo answer to that. I mean, I, I know I'm very close to some people who, who are fantastically wealthy in terms of their actual wealth, but poor in terms of their sort of richness of, of human connection. So, uh, you know, I think of, I think of, you know, does wealth, you know, financial wealth, physical wealth, can it help obtain other kinds of wealth? Like, you know, rich connections with the people around you, an ability to contribute to the society that you live in, a feeling like you are a part of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, having money helps. And, and I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, you can be poor, but super rich because it's sort of demeaning to the people who are really struggling to get by. It's like, yes, but you have a great friend network. You know, I, I don't want to be sort of, I don't want to, kind of come off as, as, I don't know if gauche is the word, but I think that whatever you mean with wealth, you, you, can't, you can't think about it without thinking about what you, what you have and what you contribute to the people around you. Sort of that relationship-based wealth is, yep. is for me what's really crucial. Yeah, the, the more woo-woo, the better on, uh, you know, in, my, in my framing, for sure. <laughs> So if, if folks are intrigued by this conversation, Greg, how do they uh, contact you, get in touch with you, continue the conversation? 
Uh, yeah, I think the uh, the easiest way would just be to um, to use my main work email, um, which is g.w.fuller at rug.nl. So it's uh, my name is Gregory William Fuller. So g.w.fuller at rugrug.nl. And yeah, I'd be happy to hear from people. All right, thanks for thanks for coming on the the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Much appreciated, Greg. Great conversation. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Greg Fuller. If you enjoyed this episode, don't hesitate to share it with your friends or else give us some feedback, shoot us an email, let us know if there are any questions you want us to continue as a follow-up. Thank you.